let's be honest, that's a pretty tough story from our Bible today, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the top ten Bible story for kids, it would struggle to get a place, wouldn't it, really? I mean, it's it's a story of brutality, of uh, violence, of uh, destruction. I mean, for some of us, it may reinforce a view that the Old Testament is uh, a story we don't understand and a God we don't want to recognise. Um, It seems to me, actually, there's two temptations of what we could do with a story like this, um, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The first thing we can do is just ignore it, kind of just just don't read it. And clearly, when we were putting together our teaching series on uh, on Abraham and sons, looking at this first uh, chapter in the uh, story of God in Genesis, that's what we could have done. We could have just said, we're not going to read it. The second temptation is to uh, dismiss it as just old-fashioned and irrelevant, to argue that it belongs to a different era and that we are more enlightened now, so it doesn't have anything to say to us. That seems to me actually what we do with difficult bits of history today. Uh, From our perspective on the upper reaches of the intellectual and moral high ground, we look down in superiority and horror at those awful things that people used to do a long time ago, without thinking for one moment what our blind spots might be today. So, for example, we're rightly energetic in pursuing those who perpetrated sexual abuse decades, years ago, and bringing them to justice. But we ignore what the sexualization of childhood is actually doing to children today. I I think we need to be very careful of just dismissing this story as irrelevant. I'll give you two further reasons why. First of all, I wonder if the world has really changed so much since the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, If you were here on Thursday, you heard Matthew Frost speak about the refugee crisis in Syria. Uh, And I was sitting here listening to him as he was telling the stories of the brutalities of the Assad regime or the horrors of the IS. And I thought, that is just evil. It's just pure evil. Is the world really so different to the evil perpetrated in Sodom and Gomorrah? And secondly, we need to remember where this story comes from. It comes from the Bible. It comes from God's word. Uh, When when, uh, uh, we had the reading that Debbie brought to us, she said to us at the end, this is the word of the Lord, and we said, thanks be to God. Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that applies to this passage as much as to any other. It seems to me what we have to do is we have to read God's word carefully. We have to come to God's word not assuming we know what it means and what our view of it is, but rather listen to it carefully, try and get under its skin, and then apply it faithfully to our lives. So what I'm going to suggest we do is this. Can you take your Bibles and open them with me to Genesis chapter 19? It's on page 19, which is tremendously convenient. And there's a little sort of yellow uh, batting order that shows you where we're going to go. And what I'm going to suggest we do this morning is this. We're going to just, first of all, just kind of walk through the story and just try and get under the skin of the story and say, what's really going on? And I've got a couple of headlines to help us do that. I've called that kind of listening carefully. And then we're going to look through it again and say, right, what does this actually mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ? What does it look like as people who stand this side of the cross? I've called that applying faithfully. uh, And we'll apply that to our own lives. So first of all, if we, listen to the caref- if we listen carefully to the story, there are three things I want us to notice. First of all, the judgment is not just about the sex. The judgment is not just about the sex. 
It is a horrifying story described in verses 4 to 9. In, 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 this, in essence, an attempted homosexual gang rape. And it's, of course, this event that gave rise to the word sodomy and has been used, I will argue wrongly, as a text in debates about sexual ethics. But if we think the real issue in Sodom was gay sex, forced or otherwise, we are missing the bigger picture. What we do need to do is go back and see how Sodom was actually introduced earlier on in the story. So keep your finger in Genesis 19 and come back with me to Genesis 13, just a few pages before, which is when Sodom gets introduced. It was the place where Lot pitched his tents, and we'll come on to that again later. But look with me at verse 13. Lot has just pitched his tent on the plains, pitched his tents near Sodom. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked and, and were sinning greatly against the Lord. There's no mention of sex here. It's just a mention that this is a, 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 a city that is evil and has turned away from God. If you go back to chapter 19, and if you look actually throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and through the words of Jesus who mentioned Sodom a few times, what Sodom was known for was its wickedness and its evil and its sin. It was known as a city that had decisively turned away from God. The horrific sexual crimes being threatened against Lot's angelic guests are but a symptom of a deeper issue, which was a city utterly consumed with wickedness and sin. A city which had turned decisively away against God's holiness, God's justice, and God's mercy, and what was, was doing right simply in its own eyes. So, so the, the real problem in Sodom was not the sex, but the sin. The fact that actually it was decisively turned away from God. Now, if you want to know, well, actually, okay, well, what, what does the Bible speak about sexual ethics? This is not the text to start. If you do want to find out, can I just recommend a book for you to read uh, afterwards? It's a book called The Plausibility Problem by a friend of mine called Ed Shaw. Ed is describes himself as someone who's attracted exclusively to men. He writes about why he thinks the Bible teaches that sex belongs within marriage between a man and a woman. He, he writes powerfully, convincingly, graciously, and honestly. If you do want to find out, can I really recommend this book? It's on the bookstool, um, and have a look at it uh, later. But don't let's start with this text. Because this text is about a deeper issue of a city that has turned away from God. A city that has utterly abandoned the holiness, justice, and mercy of God. And it was this wickedness, this brutality, that led to God's judgment of Sodom. God was so horrified by the way in which this city was consumed by evil that he could not let it stand. That city would face God's judgment and would not survive it. Now, I, I think we get the fact that evil, in its rawest form, requires judgment. I, I remember a, a short while ago, I heard the story of a senior US policymaker who said he'd forced himself to watch two of the infamous IS executions, that of the Egyptian Christians being beheaded and the Jordanian pilot being burned alive. And he said he forced himself to watch those videos because he needed to see the evil of the people who were doing them. And when he'd done that, he said, this regime is so evil, these people must be destroyed. I'm not saying that I agree with that position. I'm saying that's what he thought. 
And he said, however bad Assad is, IS is evil personified. And that sense of evil requires judgment. That's what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not about the sex, but about God's judgment of evil and wickedness. Secondly, I want us to see that God's rescue plan is not because Lot is good. God's rescue plan is not because Lot is good. We need to be really clear here that Lot is not the hero of the story. Yeah? If you want kind of further evidence of that, we need to go to the back story and we'll see this even more. Because the reason why Lot, is in, who's Abraham's nephew, is in Sodom is in the first place is because when he and Abraham were choosing areas for their different sort of cattle to pasture, Abraham said to Lot, well, you choose wherever you want to go, which is kind of him. And Lot said, I'll choose this bit over here because it's lush. It also happened to be near Sodom, which was a place of great wickedness, but Lot said, I'll go there anyway. And Abraham said, I'll choose the less verdant pasture. So Lot basically chose luxury over holiness. He basically said, I'll go there even though the men are sitting. And in fact, he starts camping outside the city. By chapter 14, he's living in the city. And so although he welcomes the angelic guests with all the necessary kind of courtesy, his actions in offering his daughters instead of the angels is frankly horrifying. Even if it was just a ruse that he knew they wouldn't accept, it was unbelievably callous. And then he kind of hesitates when the angels offer him a way out. Then he tries to negotiate over a different final destination. The reality is that Lot comes across as a pretty flawed character, compromised and hesitating. He is not a hero who deserves a great rescue plan. Yeah? So why is he rescued? Look with me at verse 16. This is after the hesitation. The Lord led him, that led him safely out of the city. Why? For the Lord was merciful to him. The Lord was merciful to him. This rescue plan is not about Lot and his merit. It's about God and his mercy. It's not because Lot is good. Thirdly, I want us to see that hearing about the rescue plan is not enough. Because there are lots of people here in the here in our story, who hear the rescue plan, but their response is pretty flawed. Uh, the judgment happens. How exactly it happens, the burning sulfur, I don't know. I was reading up on it this week. It, it could have happened when a lightning uh, struck um, the burning molten lava that would have come from an earthquake. We don't know. What was interesting is, if you, if you read the papers this week, in fact, um, to see claims of ancient Sodom that's actually been discovered just northeast of the, the Dead Sea. They've discovered a city um, that was flourishing up to about 2000 BC and then suddenly stopped being inhabited. Uh, and that, of course, matches the pattern of Abraham's experience and, and the time of Abraham exactly. We're not told exactly how it happened, but we are told about the different reactions to the forthcoming judgment. You remember Lot's prospective sons-in-law? They hear the, the angels, but they basically think it's a big joke. They scoff. Then there's Lot, he himself hesitates. And then there's Lot's wife, who looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. So I think what's going on here is this. It seems to me that Lot's wife kind of stays behind the whole party and is actually overtaken by the molten lava that follows. That's, that's the kind of reference to becoming a, uh, um, a, a pillar of salt. 
she kind of wanted to kind of see what was going to happen, exactly going against the angel's advice that they'll be overtaken. And that seems to be what happens. But Lot and his daughters, they live to fight another day. As it says in verse 29, God brought Lot out of the catastrophe. So I think that's what's going on in this, in this story. I think it's not a story about gay sex, forced or otherwise. It's a story about a city that has consciously turned away from God and is evil and wicked. It's a story of a rescue plan, not because one man is very good, but because the Lord is very merciful. And it's a story of some responses where hearing that rescue plan is not enough, but the response needs to be right. Okay, so what are we going to make of that today? If that's what's going on in the story, what are we going to make of that today? Well, I've mentioned the fact that Jesus mentioned Sodom a number of times, which he did. So it was clearly important. The question is, how does it apply to us? I think those three themes that we've already identified, I think if we track those forward from the perspective of Jesus, they're going to be really helpful. Do you remember those three themes? The theme of judgment, the theme of rescue, and the theme of response. Yeah? Why don't we look at those and see what they say to us? So point number one, we need to recognize that God's judgment is real. We need to recognize that God's judgment is real. It's easy to do two things with the idea of God's judgment. The first is to think that God won't really judge anybody because he's just too nice and lovely. You know, the kind of celestial teddy bear. You know, and so that's not going to happen. He used to do it, but he doesn't do it anymore because he's become more cuddly. Yeah? The second thing to do with God's judgment is to think that he will judge people, but there'll be people who are nasty uh, other than us. It's a lovely, comforting thought to hold on to. The only snag is it's not the whole truth about what Jesus actually said himself. I mean, Jesus did speak very clearly about the judgment that he would execute on the Father's behalf one day. And that judgment, it wasn't going to be as immediate as Sodom as it was going to be in the future, but it was going to be just as real. And that judgment would involve the judgment of all wicked people. And in fact, as I sat listening to Matthew on Thursday night, I'm thinking, I thank God that there will one day be a judgment and this evil will be held to account. That's actually a form of comfort in a, in a wicked world. Yeah, but the thing is, that's not all that Jesus said. You see, Jesus had, ultimately, his most challenging words were for people who thought that God's judgment was only going to affect others. They, they were called the Pharisees at that time. And they basically believed that God would judge all the wicked people in the world, but that judgment wouldn't come anywhere near them. And Jesus said to those people that they needed to hold the mirror up a bit more. He said they needed to take the log out of their own eye before they saw the speck in other people's eyes. In other words, they needed to notice their own sin before they th thought, started thinking about how God would judge other people's sin. And if we do that, I think we'll recognize what the Apostle Paul said when he said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short of God's perfection. We have all put ourselves in the center of our lives instead of the living creator God who made our every breath. We've all done it. We're all in the same boat. I know I have. The log in my eye is my lust, 
my pride, my envy, my self-reliance. I know that I do not deserve to stand in the presence of a holy God. When it comes to judgment day, I will not have a clean slate. Now, I recognize that this view that God will one day judge the world and that none of us will be able to stand on our own moral righteousness is a deeply countercultural view in our society today. We live in a culture where we are told you're exactly fine, exactly as you are. Nobody can judge you, apart from the very nice people behind a desk on Strictly. And they're nice, really. And it would be really tempting for me to agree with that. To say, oh, yeah, Sodom pays judgment, but you and I won't, because we're all too lovely. But the Bible is clear. We are not on the moral high ground looking down on Sodom. We're actually in the same boat. God's judgment is real. It's striking to me that when we see evil, as we see perpetrated in Syria, we say to God, God, why won't you do something about this? Why won't you judge these people? And the answer is he will. But God's judgment will involve all of us as well. That's challenging. But it's not the end of the story. Because second, God has provided a rescue plan. Because the most amazing thing about God is that he did not want his judgment to be the last word. Let me point you to some very famous words of Jesus, possibly the most famous in the whole of the Bible from John chapter 3, verse 16, where Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And listen how it carries on in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. See, Jesus did not come into the world simply to tell people they were going to be judged. You know, condemnation, end of story. He came into the world to save the world to rescue the world, just like Lot and his daughters were rescued that day. How did that rescue plan work? Well, it worked like this. Jesus came to earth and lived as a human being. But unlike anyone else, he lived a perfect life. There was no sin in him, and he did not deserve, therefore, the Father's judgment. But he voluntarily went to the cross and took on himself the judgment for sin that the whole world deserves, taking it on himself. And he took that punishment for that sin as he died on the cross. I remember a few years ago when I was in Jerusalem, I came across a a stone pavement, which actually went back to the time of the first century. It was a Roman pavement. And in fact, actually, in the pavement, you can see engraved a kind of board for a game that the Roman soldiers used to play. It's that old. And it was just by the Antonia Fortress, which is where Pontius Pilate had his Jerusalem dwelling when he came in from Caesarea on the coast for Passover festivals and things like that. And it was just there, by the Antonia Fortress, by this little Roman pavement, that a famous scene took place which is where Pilate stood before the crowd, and in front of Pilate stood two men, both sentenced to death. 
There was Jesus and Barabbas. Barabbas, who'd been sentenced to death for an insurrection, for plotting violence. And Pilate asked the crowd, as was the custom of the day, which one he could release. They wanted him to release because that was allowed. And the crowd shouted Barabbas. And I often think myself back into the scene because it's a striking one where Jesus, the innocent man, goes to the cross and Barabbas, the guilty man, goes free. And often I think myself into his shoes and think, there I am, guilty and deserving judgment. And there Jesus is, taking the punishment on my behalf so that I can go free. That's God's great rescue plan. And it wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because we'd earned it. We are as compromised and as flawed as Lot. God didn't rescue us because we deserved it. He rescued us because he is rich in mercy and abounding in grace. God's rescue plan is because he loves us. Those words of John 3.16, God so loved the world. God so loved the world. When we look at that cross, where Jesus took the penalty for our sin, we see the depth of God's love for you and for me. God's judgment is real. God has provided a rescue plan. Thirdly, let us know God calls us to respond. Because actually it's the response that really matters. We saw earlier that Lot's sons-in-law scoffed. Lot's wife held back and even Lot hesitated before making the first move. And it was the response to Jesus that really mattered during his earthly ministry. He called people. He said, come follow me. Come follow me. Believing in Jesus back then wasn't just about believing he existed. Everyone knew that. But actually it was about a decision to turn away from living for yourself to living for Jesus. And lots of people did it. Lots of people believed and followed Jesus. Uh, Prostitutes, tax collectors, fishermen, a centurion, a blind man, a Pharisee, a Jewish aristocrat. They all followed Jesus. They all recognised that he had the words to life. But some, you know, didn't follow. Some liked the status quo rather more. The rich young man liked his possessions. The Jewish authorities liked their status. Pilate liked his power. But safe as they felt at the time, they did not escape God's judgment. God calls us to believe and follow Jesus Christ, to make our response to God's great rescue plan, what will that response be? Will it be to scoff like Lot's sons-in-law? To look around at what we have and think judgment will never, ever touch us? Will it be to wait and see as Lot's wife did? Think we can make a decision later on? Or will it be to accept God's rescue plan, the one that he offers us, and place our hope 
and our trust in Jesus Christ. You see, there are many reasons to turn to Jesus Christ. In my experience, Jesus gives an amazing sense of forgiveness, a deep assurance of God's love, a lasting sense of purpose, an enduring joy, and a fantastic sense that I'm not on my own. But also, it gives me an assurance that when I die, I will not have to fear the judgment because Jesus has taken the penalty on my behalf. As the Bishop of Guildford, Andrew Watson, said recently, he said, Jesus Christ is the best way to live and the best way to die. I think we gloss over the story of Sodom and Gomorrah at our peril because not only do we find here a reminder that God will judge evil, but also we find here the contours for God's great saving plan. God has always been about a rescue plan. And Jesus was that rescue plan for you and for me. We've been thrown a life belt. Will we take it? Will we hold on to it? And will we share it with others? Let me pray.